Chihuahua thick and thin of the Whalers' first memorable season in Hartford, one moment really stands out. A moment Hartford people were looking forward to since the first insurance policy was ever written. A moment Whaler people were looking forward to since the first puck was ever dropped. Opening night, January 11, 1975. A new home, a new identity. It was the New England Whalers versus the San Diego Mariners. But the opponent didn't really matter. You could have brought in Charlie Brown's All-Stars to play the Whalers that night. Yes, the Hartford Civic Center was open. Major League Hockey was here at last, and it happened just like this. A very pleasant good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this beautiful new home of your New England Whalers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a moment that we've all been waiting for, the opportunity to meet and greet your New England Whalers. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, everybody. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. I, uh, I'm ecstatic that you've uh, you've come uh, once again, to uh, to download our little show into your earbuds and and give us a listen, we appreciate you doing so. And um, we got a treat for you this week. This is uh, time to go back into hockey, and we're we're back into the world of the World Hockey Association of the early 1970s. And uh, it is our special privilege this week uh, to talk to one of the original owners uh, of that league. Uh, circa 1971-1972. His name is Howard Baldwin, and that clip that you just heard uh, was from uh, the franchise that uh, he founded and brought into this fledgling league. Uh, started as the New England Whalers. They played in in Boston for a couple of their first uh, season and a half, almost two seasons. Uh, but as you heard in that clip from, uh, what is it, January 11th, 1975, uh, made the move uh, for various reasons, which we'll get into in our conversation coming up uh, from uh, Boston, where they were, you know, kind of the second or third or even fourth tier tenant uh, in uh, the Boston Garden and the Boston Arena and and some of the other places. At a couple of a couple of games out in Springfield, of all places, uh, they did find their home, didn't they? In the Hartford Civic Center, newly constructed uh, and an arena just looking for a, a quality tenant. And, uh, and a team, frankly, looking for a quality home. And, and boy, oh boy, a match was made in heaven uh, beginning on that date. And that's the clip that you just heard. That was actually from uh, an album. I, I apologize for not knowing who the announcer uh, was or is uh, and uh, and uh, just exactly how that uh, uh, that album get out there. But it was the uh, it was a recap of the very first season uh, in Hartford, uh, which was uh, really begun almost midseason. Uh, in January of, of 75, obviously the season started in late 1974, but that's a, that's a, a commemorative album uh, that was recorded. And there's a whole bunch of fun stuff on that album, by the way, including an amazing uh, uh, brawl. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm just so happy. You should be happy that I didn't uh, uh, regale you with uh, some of the audio clips from that. Uh, in April of, of 75, there was just a, a Donnybrook and then some uh, between the uh, New England Whalers uh, in Hartford and the uh, Minnesota living up to their name, Fighting Saints. Uh, I know you've got to search that up on on YouTube. The the uh, 
the fight there, uh, the clip on that is just, it's it's amazing how long it lasted, and the it's uh, it's just unbelievable. But it but really tells you something about uh, the WHA and all its feistiness uh, and the craziness around it, the stories and uh, and the challenge it really was to the National Hockey League. And our guest this week, Howard Baldwin, was uh, was one of those chief instigators. He and Dennis Murphy and and friends uh, sort of helped uh, create. Uh, the collective that became the World Hockey Association, Howard, uh, going on to become the actual league president uh, as the years uh, wore on and was arguably the chief architect of uh, what ultimately became, depending on who you ask, the merger or the absorption or the expansion, shall we say, of the NHL uh, to include four uh, of the uh, World Hockey Association teams that were uh, remaining, uh, one of which, of course, uh, was the uh, New England Whalers, and they become, of course, the Hartford Whalers uh, upon their entry into the NHL. But Howard Baldwin's story uh, is uh, is far beyond uh, just that. And actually, uh, his uh, his autobiography is a real treat. It's called Slim and None, My Wild Ride from the WHA to the NHL, which we'll get to, and all the way to Hollywood. We'll also get to that, too. It is an amazing story uh, of, uh, of not only being a, a great hockey uh, founder and owner and administrator, uh, but also one of uh, of becoming a, a well known and well regarded producer in Hollywood of of uh, of great movies. And you'll hear from Howard uh, in a few minutes. He's still at it. A couple of movies uh, in the hopper with uh, uh, his uh, wife slash partner out in Los Angeles. Uh, it's just an amazing story that all began uh, really kind of uh, professionally for the for the uh, first couple of his uh, youthful first adult years uh, in. Uh, the World Hockey Association. And we're going to get into all that stuff with our very special guest, Howard Baldwin, coming up in just a couple of minutes. And uh, we appreciate your uh, sticking around for that uh, great conversation. And uh, boy, oh boy, our our sponsors this week really uh, are, are absolutely appropriate uh, for this episode. Because if you're into the WHA, as uh, a lot of our listeners uh, are, uh, we've got three, count them, uh, great places to find uh, tremendous uh, WHA uh, garb, wear, T-shirts, as well as jerseys uh, from all of these three places. And uh, far be it for me to say which of these places and which of these shirts and jerseys and logos are the best or better of of the lot. Uh, I'm going to give you three great opportunities and places to check them out uh, from our these great sponsors. And I got promo codes for all of them. And uh, you tell me which you like and, and and where you hopefully can find something that you're interested in. But uh, why don't you check out all the WHA gear and garb at uh, these fine places. Uh, Streaker Sports, our friends StreakerSports.com uh, has uh, an amazing uh, uh, collection of, uh, of WHA t-shirts uh, and as well as all kinds of other sports. And, and check them out. And uh, at StreakerSports.com, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases uh, when you go check them out. Uh, and uh, let's see, we've got some Denver Spurs in there. We've got the Minnesota Fighting Saints uh, T-shirt. we got some really uh, the Ottawa Nationals, uh, the Jersey Knights, uh, the Vancouver Blazers. They're all in there. And, of course, the New England Whalers are, are represented as well with a beautiful 1972 version uh, of their T-shirt. Again, that's streakersports.com, promo code GOODSEATS. And you will get 10% off all of your purchases uh, there. Uh, let's see. You could also try 503 Sports. That's 503-sports.com. 
WHAT.com. And uh, there you're going to find uh, a whole bunch of uh, not only uh, WHA T-shirts. Uh, let's see, a couple of, I see Chicago Cougars there. There's an L.A. Sharks shirt there. We've got uh, uh, the WHA Hall of Fame T-shirt in there. We've got the Birmingham Bulls in there. We've got all kinds of stuff, but also some hats. I see some Cincinnati Stingers uh, hats there. I see uh, a Michigan Stags hoodie. Uh, and we also have an Indianapolis Racers jersey from 1978. All of those things uh, and more you will find at 503 Sports. That's 503-sports.com. The king of throwbacks, they call themselves. And the promo code there is SEATS. And you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. That's 503 Sports, 503-sports.com. And of course, uh, last but certainly not least, are our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. And uh, OldSchoolShirts.com, you will find uh, an incredible trove of high-quality T-shirts and some great pricing on such, such some of those as well. Uh, there at OldSchoolShirts.com, you're going to find uh, some really cool WHA stuff. You find it not only a um, uh, an Indianapolis Racer shirt there, but you find the old logo and the um, sort of the fight uh, uh, theme there, Positive Waves. Uh, on a, a really cool gray shirt with a distressed looking Indianapolis Racers uh, logo with the uh, the logo there. It says positive waves on it. It's very cool. I don't think I've seen it anywhere else. Uh, you've got uh, Phoenix Roadrunner shirt there. You've got uh, Cleveland Barons represented. And again, of course, we've got another New England Whalers uh, T-shirt for you there. And this one's uh, green, beautiful green uh, with a uh, white sort of reverse logo uh, there for you, too. So check out all those shirts uh, then and more at uh, oldschoolshirts.com. And uh, we've got a promo code for you there, of course, as well. And that's the promo code GOODSEATS, oldschoolshirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases there. So you have no uh, no excuse not to check out uh, any of those great sites to get your uh, WHA on, so to speak. And uh, hopefully that'll get you all set for our great conversation uh, with the wonderful Howard Baldwin coming right up. Yours is a magical story, right? Uh, and uh, luckily uh, uh, encompassed in your autobiography. But, um, you know, I, I, it, it because it touches on the WHA and the founding of that and your early days in hockey, uh, that's certainly something that we really love to sort of dig deeper into. And we've had some interesting conversations uh, around the WHA. I've had some uh, uh, not yet aired uh, chats with Dennis Murphy, who's got uh, more than a few things to say still about the WHA. Um, yeah, that's good. He's, yes, and I look forward to uh, completing those and getting those out there because Lord knows he's got plenty of other exploits uh, that we want to tackle before uh, we get them all uh, onto onto the air. But maybe you can regale our audience a bit, especially those who are uh, unfamiliar, say, with your Hollywood work or, frankly, your previous lives, uh, how you kind of got into the hockey business altogether. Uh, and maybe it kind of steers steers you back to your childhood days and and how you uh, were thinking about what you wanted to do for a living as you were growing up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when you're growing up, you're young, you don't really think about much. You just take one day at a time. But, you know, I always would love to have played sports at a higher level and just wasn't quite good enough. So I said, OK, the next best thing is going to work for a team. So I started 
that's what I did. I started with the Flyers in their minor league team, the Jersey Devils, for one year. And then when they when they started playing in the NHL, I went over there and became their ticket manager and then their ticket and sales manager. So I really started at the bottom. Had a wonderful experience there. Ed Snyder, the owner, was wonderful to me, as were the other folks there. And that was like my college degree in sports. I learned a lot. Front office. What was it about hockey, though? What, what was it about hockey that uh, that drew well, your interest in the first place? Yeah, because I mean, we were on skates like Canadian kids, or so we were from New York. But we we skated when we could walk. My dad was a great college player, so he had us on skates very early age, and I just loved the sport. Yeah, how did you talk your way into uh, you know minor league and then and into the Flyers thing? So it, it, it probably just didn't fall on your lap, right? You probably, it sounds like a little bit of hustle and you know, yeah, you about, had to like, hustle. Like, I mean. Yeah, I mean, he had to hustle. Uh, a friend of my dad's uh, worked at J.P. Morgan and actually was a lending officer, a senior lending officer there, and he put together a couple of deals for teams. He did the Eagles deal and he did the Jack Kent Cook deal, and then Cook hired to come out to L.A., and uh, I actually spoke to Jack Kent Cook. I was going to go out to L.A. to work, and then Putnam left fairly quickly as I gather a lot of people did with Cook. And uh, so he left fairly quickly, came back to the East Coast and went to down to Philadelphia to run the Flyers and join their expansion effort with Ed Snyder and Jerry Wallman. And so as soon as he shifted, he was my, my relationship into that world. So he said, Howard, come on down here. We'll start you at the bottom. And and I was I was fortunate. I had a, a you know networking friend of a friend, so to speak, and he gave me my shot. And once you get in the door, if you do things reasonably well, you can hopefully stay there. <laughs> so th- this is this is circa '67, right? The uh, the great expansion of the uh, of almost the du- actually the doubling of the size of the NHL and fill it with fill yeah, it, right. That's right. But 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 when they. I mean, they had gotten their franchise by the time I was talking to Putnam. They had, so I knew they had their franchise. So there was no mystery there. The mystery was what to do with me for a year before the team really started gearing up. That's why I went to the Jersey Devils operation in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which was the old Slapshot League, Johnstown Jets and Clinton Comets and Long Island Ducks and it was a wild, crazy league. Slapshot was tame compared to what really went on in that league. Yeah, I mean, the more, the more people we talk to around hockey, they almost seem like it's, it's, it's almost like a documentary, that movie, in a sort of strange and odd way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it was, that's what the league was. Definitely. So, you, all right. So you're doing you're doing the minor league thing. You're obviously uh, connected to the Flyers franchise, and you obviously move up into uh, into the ticket managing thing. So, so what is it about this sport of hockey? Is it sports generally? Is it the uh, the excitement? Is it the uh, the uh, the entertainment value? The uh, in arena experience? Is it is it the sport itself? What is what's really clicking with you? Because obviously, uh, getting a sense of that uh, as you get into your WHA experience, which is a whole sort of thing, we want to get into. Um, what's driving sort of your interest and your passion for this so far? Well, the passion was, first of all, to work and to work in professional sports. I wouldn't kid you if somebody came along and said, here's a position with a football team or a baseball team, I probably would have jumped at it. It just so happened to have been a hockey opportunity. 
So I jumped at it, fit me best, because I knew the sport best as far as actually playing it. But I never was involved in the in the playing end of the business. Um, I was involved in the sales and marketing and that end of the business. So it was a passion to be around professional sports. And and um, that's, that's what, you know, I loved. All right, so you you were the Flyers, and I got to think that that's a heady experience, especially with the uh, NHL expanding and, and obviously – you know, arguably uh, rather late relative to the other uh, leagues that were sort of embracing uh, national expansion and, and sort of seeing the, the bigger opportunities ahead. Um, so why would you leave the Flyers, given that sort of relatively uh, new and exciting opportunity? Um, maybe you can walk us through a little bit of this World Hockey Association thing. When did this hit your radar? And how the hell did you even get involved in all of this uh uh, craziness, because uh, you could make the argument that having just gotten to the NHL and getting your feet wet, uh, a real well, yeah, you're right. I mean, it was, it was. Um, I had been with the Flyers for like three and a half, four years, and I just knew instinctively it was time to move on and try to make my next step. Um, you know, front offices were very small then, so there was not a lot of room for growth. And so as much as I it loved being around the team, I knew that it was, I don't know, instinctively, it just seemed like the right time to take the next step. And so I took a, a risky step and left and moved to Massachusetts. Um, I did some consulting work in Philadelphia for the former president of the Flyers for like three months and and then just wanted to see you know, what was going to happen next? You're young. I was only like 26, 25. And you just say something will fall into my lap or I'll get something going. And I guess I was too stupid to realize that I took a hell of a risk. <laughs> so you you didn't have a job when you moved back to Massachusetts. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying, what yes. Did, what did you think was going to happen or what did you kind of want to perhaps will No to idea. No idea. No idea. That's the fun of going down a trail. You go down, you take a journey, and you see what happens. All right. So how did how, how does this journey then wend its way into this World Hockey Association? Walk us through a little bit of that. And and I guess this guy named Bob Schmertz is in the midst of all this too. How does this WHA thing come to your understanding? And how do you uh, give us some sense of how that came about? Sure. Read a little article in the Boston Globe about a new league being formed. Uh, being a sports fan, I was well aware of the the American Football League and the American Basketball Association. Um, uh, so I just figured, okay, the, you, I read about the WHA. I said, maybe there's an opportunity here. So I found the number of the league office, which is out here in Orange County, Dennis Murphy. He's the first guy I spoke to. And he asked me some questions. And and I asked him some questions. and um, And he said, well, We'd love to have a franchise in New England, so let me fly back there and meet with you. And I had a partner, John Coburn, who was the same age I was. You know, we grew up together. And um, we just, you know, right from that point, we started, there's no other way to put it, but winging it. And Dennis flew in. We met. Um, I think he felt, in fact, I know he felt that, well, these two young guys have family money. And therefore, they probably will be able to to pull all this together. 
Uh, and they weren't so wrong on the money end of it, but they weren't giving anything to us. Uh, so it was up to us to sink or swim on this venture. So we just we just then got into it. And and thank God I had a little experience, a little contact with some sport, you know, NHL people because I had been in the league and, you know, kept my eyes and ears open. But, you know, we began the process of, of first of all, finding a place to play, which was not easy, and and then securing the capital. We got the capital, um, frankly, after we were awarded the franchise. You're kidding. We were awarded. Nope. We get we we begged, borrowed, and steal. Not stole, but we begged, borrowed the down payment for the franchise and the first year or first payment of league dues, and said, "Now we're really in trouble. We got to raise the money." And uh, we had heard about Bob Schmertz because it was in the newspaper that he he owned twenty five percent of the Portland Trailblazers, and he had. There was an article in the New York Times about him wanting to buy a team in the Canadian Football League um, for Yankee Stadium. So we reached out to to uh, Bob uh, just somewhat blindly, and he said, sure, I'll meet with you guys. He had never seen a hockey game. He barely knew what it was. And uh, we set up a meeting. We did the deal in a half an hour with him. Uh, he flew to Massachusetts, and uh, we instinctively liked him, and I think he liked us, and I just think I think he felt, you know, it's, he had a lot of money then, and he just said, there's no downside. If they can make it work, it could be a really good upside. And it turned out we were probably one of the better finance teams because of Bob the first couple of years. All right, well, so all right, before we go any further, with all due respect, Howard, who's who's hustling who here, right? Because... You know, we've talked We're all about, hustling each other. Yeah. Okay. Well, explain that a little bit because you know we we have yet to air our our conversations with uh, with Dennis on 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 a lot of this, but but we have we have explored a bit on sort of the you know the the battle of the models, I guess, for you know sports uh, endeavors, whether it be sort of a central control kind of process or this sort of franchise thing, and the and the, obviously the the world of 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 uh, Dennis Murphy produced uh, uh, endeavors, right, is very much of a franchise kind of model and arguably a little um I don't know house of cards ish if it's uh, not played right and certainly played out in the early 70s how how are you I don't know it seems like you you, you must have had the gift of gab uh and or, <laughs> or or the ability to sort of sell the idea to to lots of different people and I I'm just really curious as to how all that comes together without maybe a lot of scrutiny or just frankly see to your pants kind of luck well it was so much it was so different then and the people that founded the league, Dennis and Gary, they were hell-bent on putting 12 franchises together. So, you know, they never wanted to look too deep because they needed 12 in order to kick off the league. And, um, you know, and believe me, those first few years, really right up until the end of the WHA, everybody always circled around each other. At every every turn, making sure, well, is this guy going to be able to last? And and um, there was never a doubt about us once we got in Bob Schmertz, and that happened pretty quickly. But it was a hustle. There's no question about it. Dennis and Gary were hustling us, and if they tell you anything different, they're full of it. 
And we were hustling them and saying, oh, we got this and we got that. Just feeling like we'll find a way to put it together. And we did. Um, if you look at all the changes, even in the first year before the puck even dropped, there were four or five franchise changes. Miami, San Francisco, Dayton went to Houston. Los Angeles? Um, no, I think L.A. played there the first year. Oh, fair enough. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but they were moving around like checkerboards. Philadelphia went to Vancouver. Um, it was it was it was it was a little crazy. But so was the ABA. It's, it's just the way it was. Um, and, and uh, you know, you could no more pull something like that off today in a billion years. All right. Well, so, so tell me about tell, tell me about how you, where you found a place to play and what was the sort of the thinking? Because Boston, uh, not unlike New York, I guess, at the time, uh, not an easy place to find, shall we say, top tier uh, and available uh, uh, places to play uh, of a of the certain scale, I guess that the WHA was trying to do in a in, in competition with the NHL. What was your? How did you go about uh, you know finding a place to play and sort of uh, rooting uh, this franchise uh, in its uh, first year of the WHA? The first place we looked was Providence because we knew they were building an arena there, eleven thousand seat brand new arena. But again, these were the days of I don't know good old boys club and Providence had an American league team there and the owner of the team had been in Providence forever. So they weren't going to let anybody come in. They were making sure that this building was available. They ended up getting in a lot of trouble for it. So they kept us out. Um, and well, then I'm sorry, was, was Providence because Boston didn't have any opportunities for no, you? Or? No, 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 no. We looked at Providence first. We looked at Providence first because we felt Boston had the Boston Braves in the AHL, and they had the they had the uh, Celtics, of course, and they had the Bruins, and the Bruins were riding high. So we figured, let's go to Providence. It's New England. It's hockey country, and so that's where we first tried to get in. And you know, we were being blocked at every turn. So we then met a lawyer named Phil David Fine who was the architect of the first stadium that was built for the New England Patriots. And it was a powerhouse in, in, uh, in uh, Boston in sports and law. And it was actually, again, one of those twists of fate. We were actually on a plane going down to the league meeting to get the franchise. And he, he sat behind us on the plane and I introduced myself and he said, oh, you're the kids that are trying to get a hockey franchise. I said, said, yep. And I said, we could use some help for a place to play. And he said, if you get that franchise, you call me up and I'll get you a place to play. And that's what happened. He then, he knew the Bruins and he knew that antitrust wise, they couldn't completely keep you out. So he got on board and we got the franchise. I called him up and said, okay, I did my thing. <laughs> and then he did his thing. And if you may not know it, but the first year we only played, we only played like 21 games in the garden and we played 19 in the old Boston arena. Yeah. Uh, and uh, how did, how did that go with the fans? Right. Do they kind of remember or how, how did you get them to go to the right place? Because <laughs> sharing is- that wasn't hard. Oh, okay. But you, but you could certainly, if we played at the Garden, we knew we'd do eight to 10,000 people a game. We played at the Boston Arena, we did three or 4,000 people a game. Believe me, there was a dramatic difference. 
<laughs> in each arena. How did you find yourselves? Um, okay, so how did you find yourselves marketing this team, given that you were in Boston? And maybe share with us what lengths did the Bruins and or the NHL go, or maybe not go, to making your life more challenging, shall we say, in your first couple of years in town? Well, two different wars. The Bruins actually were fine. They were so powerful. And hockey was at such a high point there that they didn't, you know, they just figured we'd fold. And uh, so they never really, they knew that we were playing in their building and they're making money off of us. And they gave us dates like Monday night and, you know, Friday afternoon. I mean, they were crazy dates. Um, the NHL, of course, you know, they did everything they could to discredit us and, and as we signed players from them, they would try to scurry around and sign them back. It was just, it was just a war. Uh, and we were competing for markets. You know, then they, if you look at your history book, they went, what's fascinating is you went in 1967, six rather, from six teams. And then if you look from 1974, you had 26 teams. You had an NHL that was up to, I think, 14, and you had a WHA at 12. It was crazy. And what people don't realize, 26 teams, okay, that's 20 more than the original six. Every team has 30 to 40 players under contract. Do the math. You know, you were, you were reaching anywhere for players. Uh, and it got very competitive. But it opened it up, too. It opened it up to Europe. It opened it up to some of the behind the Iron Curtain countries. Um, it opened it up to Americans before before the WHA. It was just a tiny handful of Americans that played in the NHL. And you had a lot of Americans that uh, that very first year, right? Which which yeah, I think we, we were almost forty five percent, fifty percent American, right? Which was which kind of novel for the time uh, across both leagues. No, no question. We had an American coach, Jack Kelly. And not only that, but you also won the, the championship the first year. I mean, how did you go about putting that team together? And how much, I mean, was it just dumb luck that you wound up uh, doing so well? Or was this kind of a meticulous and uh, well-thought-out plan or something in between? Well, Jack Kelly was the GM. He gets all the credit for what happened on the ice. And he built the team that, that some guys built the team where they would go from one extreme to the other. And they'd have a couple of star players, and then they would sort of go for upper echelon AHL players or, or uh, you know, bottom tier NHL. Jack, Jack really went for some five or six up-and-coming good young, young NHL players. Tommy Webster, Ricky Lee, Jimmy Dory, Brad Selwood, Al Smith, all guys in their low to mid-20s. And then he filled in with some solid citizen, you know, like AHL players, like a Bruce Landon, um, Teddy Green he got from the Bruins, uh, and then some top-line college players. That's the way he built that team, and he built it right. How did the fans take to you? I mean, uh, obviously you're oh, they were great. They were, first year we did great. I mean, we led the league and everything. We won everything. We won the championship. We won everything. And then the second year, obviously, it changed. The bloom was off the rose, as they say. The second year is always harder than the first, and the novelty wears off. And what 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 was it about the second year? Was it the repeat thing? Was it the well? And also, uh, probably the seeds of your 
uh, shall we say, consternation with the uh, the arena's situation in Boston, too. Probably no, probably. because the second year we were all in the garden. They opened up and gave us 41 dates or 40, what, 38, whatever the number of games was. And then that's what made it interesting because, oh, God, we had 38 dates in the garden. But it it almost like it had reached a saturation point with the Bruins and the Braves doing so well. Now the Whalers and the, and the demand for it just we knew the smartest thing we knew is we knew by November of that second year we were we were in a precarious position. And that's where, you know, we immediately heard about Hartford and their new arena, and we went down there and made a deal quickly um, because we just knew the bloom was off the rose in Boston, and they were tapped out vis-a-vis four prime tenants in one building. Did you guys ever play either the Braves or the Bruins in any kind of exhibition game? I'm sure there was a a lust by the WHA to kind of play and and try to prove their wares, but no. Nope, nope. Never did. Not till we did the merger. Very interesting. All right. Well, so who who romances who with this Hartford Civic Center? Right? Is it them looking for you, or or you them? Who? How does that kind of get uh, get broached? We and, were and, both. And maybe the path how you got there because you didn't immediately go there, right? You had to k- take a couple of detours into Springfield for a little while too. Nope. Nope. That's not quite right. What happened is once Bob Schwartz and I said, I think we should be looking for a better place. I read in the again the New York Times, one of the newspapers, that the Hartford Civic Center was being built, and the negotiations with a guy you may remember this name Charlie Finley uh, broke off, and how disappointed the building manager's name was Bill Lillyman, and they needed a prime tenant, and I called up literally that day, and he said, "Oh my God, come on down, let's meet." To show you how much we knew about Hartford, we chartered a plane from Boston to Hartford. <laughs> and we actually crash-landed in, in the Brainerd Air Force. We landed the wrong way in them. I don't like to fly. And I told the guy, go home. We're going to drive home. Well, we drove home quicker than it took us to fly down there. It was such a short. But anyway, we went in and we met with Lillyman, and he had a fellow from Aetna Life and Casualty, one of their senior executives, a great guy, Don Conrad. We made a deal within an hour. We shook hands on a deal to move the team there. And um, closed the deal within three months. Couldn't do that kind of stuff these days, right? And you were the pri- you would be the you were the primary tenant there in that new facility. Yes, sir. Huh? Yeah. And where Springfield comes in is is um, we finished the regular season in Boston. But they knew we were moving, so they were mad, you know. And so we played the playoffs at the Big E in Springfield. And then we started the following season, which was our third season. This is 75, 75, right? Yeah, we started that season in the new building. Let me get that right. No, it was still at the Big E. We started the... The sorry, we started the third season at the Big E, and then we shifted over to Hartford. I think it was right around January 10th or 11th of '75 for the first game at Hartford. And what was the uh, what was the reaction of Hartford? It seems like uh, that was kind of a love affair from uh, from first sight. Lights out, first day one. Puck. Lights out, day one. Full buildings. We played. We never, and we had some teams, particularly the early years in the NHL. <clears throat> where we weren't good, and we never went below 75% paid capacity. 
So even though you'd won the championship that first year, uh, you're still embraced by Hartford. And I've, I guess it's sort of these sort of, I wouldn't call a small town per se, right? But it's certainly a, you know, you become the first love because you're the first, you're the, you're the literally the only professional game in town and, and, uh, and embracing uh, Hartford and, and all of the New England region versus sort of being the number two or three or even four ten oh, yeah, in was, Boston. It was fantastic from day one. We were the only show in town. We were in the right place at the right time. The people were wonderful. There was a great spirit between the corporate community, the state, and the city. And it worked. And and it really never didn't work. We had some lean years in the early 80s because the team was bad. But again, they still supported the team. Uh, and... Um, it was it was terrific marketplace. Well, by all accounts, it seems like the Whalers were, if not the, certainly one of the small group of model franchises for the WHA. Um, so obviously, that's a testament to your uh, your skill or naivete or or something, some combination thereof. Um, so why would you say, in your estimation, and we'll get into your your league duties as we sort of get into this, but. What do you? How come more people weren't following your blueprint, so to speak? Was it just bad luck or situation or, or ownership issues, or why were you the exception well, more than the rule, so to speak? Not every market is the same. Winnipeg always did well. Edmonton did well. Quebec did well, and we did well. And then you had teams that just didn't have the market wasn't quite. Cincinnati had great ownership. Um, and wanted to get in the NHL, but the NHL didn't want them. Same with Houston. Birmingham was always marginal. Indianapolis, marginal. And I'm trying to think of Chicago. You had another team. You just wasn't going to work in Chicago at that period of time. And so we, but, but there were certain WHA markets that did very well. The four I mentioned. And frankly, I think Cincinnati would have done really well if they'd gotten in. And Houston would have done well. But uh, the league wanted to take four. And so we had to, you know, shrink the league down. That's all there was to it. All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you while we do so that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, Seattle was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball. But obviously, the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball, and it remains to this day uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball. 
uh, in this country. Of course, you can also, if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, great legendary years at club play as well as national team play. Uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL with uh, the book called NFL Football, a History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Crapeau and narrated by Marlon May. That too, uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate your doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. So walk me into sort of how you become more involved in the actual full-on league, right? You, did you literally become sort of a, a, the senior executive and or the president of the league over, over those yep. years? The, the, the first year, which is the end of the fourth or end of the fifth year in the WHA, we had our first attempt at the merger. And a guy named Bill DeWitt, he owns the St. Louis Cardinals now, Billy and I sort of led the charge and we failed, but we knew then our mission had to be, had to be to get a merger done. And, and so that that was the way we were moving forward. And the other guys in the league knew this. And so they felt, okay, I, I, I wasn't day to day running the league. We had somebody that did that, but I was like the president of the league. And my role for the league was to, obviously franchise stability, but it really was primarily to make sure a merger happened. And uh, that was my focus, and I spent a lot of time on it. How did, how did that merger conversation early on start to occur? Who's, who's reaching out to whom? Who's, who's sort of brokering those conversations and relationships? Because obviously out in the public, right, uh, there's, uh, there's no love, love loss between these two entities. No, but it, behind the scenes, we did what we had to do to get meetings uh, the first go round were all in Montreal because that's where they had almost all their meetings, and um, and it was it was it it sort of broke the it thawed the relationship out the meetings. I mean, they realized that okay, these guys have some merits, and we realized that these guys aren't quite the bad guys. We all knew each other. I mean, Ed Snyder was, uh, you know, with the Flyers, he's one of my closest friends ever. Uh, so it wasn't as if we were strangers with each other. We just had different viewpoints. <laughs> uh, so, well, I got I got to think the NHL though was also uh, uh, just uh, apoplectic about the rising salaries uh, that uh, the WHA was bringing. They in. were, but there were guys in that league like Harold Ballard and the Boston people and the Vancouver people and some of the old guard. They weren't going to let us in no matter what. So we failed the first time. We struck out. And then we look, sort of looked at each other and said, okay, what are we going to do? Because we need this merger. 
we knew we weren't going to last forever. So that's when we went back and attacked our game plan, game plan become underage juniors. And, you know, Johnny Bassett in Birmingham signed all those kids, and Billy DeWitt signed Mark Messier, and we went after the, the kids. And we went after stars, too. I sat with Rod Gilbert in the Aetna office with the CFO of the Aetna offering him 175 grand a year for five years, praying he wouldn't take it. <laughs> and he didn't, thank God. We just were going to get him and kick him in the you-know-what because we had to get him to the table. And my mandate for my partners, because we had solid ownership, remember, I had some of the biggest corporations in the world as my partners now. Schmertz got out in the corporate community of Connecticut, Hartford came in, and their mandate to me was get in the NHL. We'll we'll put the money up, get us in there. So that became my mission. How did you um how did you bring the the, the, the league owners into this conversation and maybe at the same time, how do you I don't know, maybe not so gently kind of make your priority list versus some of the other franchises that maybe you just knew would never make uh, that crossover into a league if there ever was. Everybody knew what I was doing and they all wanted me to do it because yes, you're right. There were guys that knew they'd never get in, but they knew they'd be bought out. And so they could like Johnny got two and a half million dollars out of Birmingham for not going in. Billy DeWitt got 4 million bucks for not going in. Others got less. So they all knew that they, this was their way to either get something for their efforts or in the case of the three Canadian cities and Hartford, this was the way to get in the NHL. And, and how, does, how does it finally come into being and how do you circle on the, on the teams that did go? I see it's, it seems pretty obvious the Canadian franchises, because right, that's pretty un, uncharted territory for the NHL. How do you, how do you make that, that call and how, do you get, you know, how does Cincinnati not make the last, last cut and all that kind of stuff? Okay, it became pretty easy because it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and we knew, I mean, we were, the league in its fifth, sixth, seventh year was struggling. Was struggling. And franchises were dropping. And, and we didn't prop them up. We didn't try to move them. Because we knew at the end of the day we wanted to do a merger. At the end of the, at the, end of the first go-round, we were advised by the league, the NHL, hire the law firm of Proskauer, which is a terrific antitrust law firm, and let's start using them as a go-between between the two leagues to make this happen. And that's what we did. And, uh, and so, so it was, you know, we thought, we thought at one point we might have had six teams go in with Cincinnati and Houston going in. And actually, we voted in in June and then voted out in, in August because the Hawks rallied the troops and, <laughs> and won the day. Um, but we knew, we just knew that no matter what, there were certain teams that just weren't going to make it. So if it came that they would, they'd come to us and say, look, we can either move, fold, but we're not putting any more money in, we'd say, okay, here's 500 grand. And... Uh, Give us full releases. We'll divide up your players, and that's the end of it. And the last year, I think we were down to like seven teams, six teams, six teams. What's the matter with me? So your your levers then, right, were the sort of the twin sort of uh, threats, I guess, of the of deep pockets, right? Uh, arguably, 
uh, not necessarily uh, uh, full and uh, and 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 real per se, but at least the perception, right, of of big of big uh, spending to you know keep the uh, salaries inflated, and the NHL didn't like that. But also this antitrust thing, right, which seems to be like the sickle, uh, sort of over the head of the NHL. That that that, that they were a super cautious league when it came to that. That's why if you look in the history books, they never called it a merger. They always called it the 79 expansion. And so that theoretically, if you legally, the WHA went out of business and then four WHA teams went into the NHL. You look at, you look it up. It was never called a merger in any of the announcements from anybody. How did you feel once that, uh, once that agreement was done, um, did you feel that you could immediately compete with the NHL and then some? Certainly Hartford could, right? Do you mean on the ice? Yeah, well, both on the ice and as, 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 as legitimate you know, entities and businesses within this new established league. Or not new established yeah, league. Yeah, I, I think the four teams felt that we would be really solid financial partners within the league. I think on the ice, remember, they stripped us down pretty good. They said you could keep two skaters and two goalkeepers, and the rest went to the NHL if they had a claim. In other words, if if we had a certain player that we had on our team, if he wasn't one of the four protected and he had been drafted by Detroit, Detroit could claim him. You follow me? Yeah, and, I do. And then, yeah, and then they did have an expansion draft, but I put that in quotes. So, so, but, you know, we were competitive from day one. Uh, we actually made the playoffs our first year. Uh, and so we were never an embarrassment to them. And it was a pretty good expansion. It was a pretty well thought out plan. At what point, though, did you, I mean, so obviously Hartford still probably, the, I, I'm guessing, was kind of the smallest media market, right? When all, all things being equal? Without a question, we were the smallest market in the league, in how, the smallest building. And how did, how did that, so, and how did, did that not matter in the early years? I mean, was this sort of like the Green Bay Packers, no, well, of the league, or what? Yeah, they referred to it a lot like that, but smallest market, smallest building, yet we had the third, fourth highest gross in the league at the gate. We just had a good market. You know, it's nice to be the only show in town. And then if you sell out, you can get a good competitive price for your tickets. And everything then was in tickets. Very little in television and all the crap they have now. You know, it was all in tickets. So if you if you did good with the tickets, you were going to do well. Well, you did something really well there, right? We had the, the Whaler guys on a couple of months ago. You know, these these guys who are still uh, clinging to the uh, the hope that, <laughs> that the Whalers franchise can return to Hartford. But my, my God, it is still to this day, right? As you well know, right, the... I think the merchandise of of all the defunct or not no longer around teams, uh, the Hartford Whalers still punches above its weight in terms of uh, merchandise sales, and and there's still that sort of lore and that love of that team uh, in New England and in particular in, in in Hartford in the state of Connecticut for that that uh, that Whalers franchise. It's a, it's pretty amazing. It you're right about the merch, um, and yeah, it became like a cult franchise. I never should have moved, but uh, um, again, we we really did do all the things from a marketing community relations standpoint. We had a great front office team, and and the players got fed into it. Players like playing there because most of them were from smaller Canadian towns, and 
<clears throat> it had a nice feel to Hartford. People liked to play there. I'm sure in this day and age it would be different. But 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 then it was it was a nice place to play. Um, and the team became part of the fabric of the society there. Uh, everybody knew that's the only show in town. This was your identity. This was the identity for Hartford. It was the identity for Connecticut, really. Connecticut's a funny state. You have Fairfield County, which is pretty much the bedroom community of New York City. But then you have the rest of the state. And they just embraced this team like you really seriously. You, you did a good analogy. Green Bay Packers is a good analogy. Yeah, it's not Boston. It's not New York. It's us. It's different. We, we've got it. Absolutely. That's, that's part of the, the halo that still exists. So, all right, before we get off the WHA in, in this period of time in the 70s, so a uh, couple of quickies. So, number one, um, you, you know, you uh, you say in your in your book, it's a, it's a great little in the, the prologue about uh, – uh, as your uh, as your film career uh, in the later years came on, that um, you want to tell a little story uh, that you mentioned in the book about. Uh, I, I guess it was during the Academy Awards night, right? Uh, was there a special something that you were wearing that uh, harkens back to this franchise that night? Oh yeah, well the first year we won the AFCO, and we had beautiful, beautiful rings. So for good luck, and, and for the audience, rings. the AFCO was the AFCO Cup, which was the uh, the name. Right. The title sponsor, if you will, ahead of its time of the championship cup for the. Yeah, and so I figure, okay, we're going. You know, the best picture is big deal. So my wife Karen and I are sitting there in the in the audience with that ring on for good luck. I'd otherwise, I'd never wear it. It's too big and bulky. And sitting with Adam Sandler right next to us, and we chatted away. You're held captive for four hours, and talking about the ring and hockey. He's a big hockey fan, and. Say, well, I'm wearing it for good luck, and of course they announced the big picture or the best picture. We don't win, and he said, "Well, you should shit can excuse my language, but you better get rid of that ring." <laughs> but still, at all, it was it was it was good. Well, let's 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 put it. There. You still won a couple of Academy Awards for that movie, Ray, which was an awesome film. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah. I, yeah. I, th- I think some of the luck rubbed up, but I, it does speak to, and I think most Whalers fans can appreciate, right? It does. There's that special thing, and and. Uh, that sort of uh, still uh, lasts today, and I think that's uh, that's pretty telling, given that that was sort of your first real taste of uh, professional sports. Oh yeah, I mean, I, you can't help but have a great deal of love for what happened there in the '70s and '80s. It was a special time with a special franchise, and it'll always be like a cult franchise. And unfortunately, it's not there now, but it doesn't take away from what was done when when we were there. All right. Well, before we go off the 70s, I want to ask you about this little detour that I see your name attached to, depending on where you look, either either attached to or or not attached to. And that is this little thing called the World Football League and the New York Stars. How much or how little were you involved with that? I know Mr. Schmertz was to an extent, right? I started out, I figured, okay, I'm in Boston, so I figured they're going to start the league. And so I took the Boston franchise. And oh, so I'm sorry. So uh, you were you were going to be a New England franchise uh, participant in this World Football League that uh, yep. I guess Murphy was yep. part of too, right? Uh, uh, Dennis wasn't. Gary was. Gary, right? Uh, Gary, uh, Gary uh, Davidson. Yep. Davidson. And and uh, I actually, you know, we had a team name. We hired a really well-known coach and GM, and but I really quickly realized I was in way over my head. I, you know. I had to keep the whalers. That was my first obligation, just to make sure that worked. So 
I said to Bob Schmertz, who was totally supportive of what I was doing, I said, Bob, let me sell this team and we'll take our front office because he hadn't done anything. He had the New York Stars. I said, let's bring Babe Pirelli and the GM and a few of the staff down to New York. They can run your team and I'll help you from afar to get it going. And that's what we did. So, and then the New York Stars, I, I helped them for like the first year. But really, the biggest thing I did for him there is to make sure he could unload it, because it was a money it was a money pit, a real money pit. Uh, and sadly, that league did not work at all. And Bob, then we we got Upton Bell, who was a great guy, great character, and he took the team off of Bob's hands and moved down to Charlotte. Yes, we had a, we had a great conversation with Upton uh, last summer, and uh, some very. He did. We did. It's some very interesting stories as to how the how he you know circled on on Charlotte and and obviously having had his uh, his cup of coffee with the New England Patriots prior and his his desire to kind of get back into the game and stuff and and you know it's it I, I think it's it's lost on a lot of uh, uh, historians right uh, who follow this stuff like we do right that the uh, the Charlotte uh, uh, Hornets actually you know were the New York Stars prior to that but literally were actually even though they never really played the Boston. Uh, I guess they were called the Bulldogs. Then he shortened it to Bulls. Is that was was that the name was going to be the team? No, no. He's actually the Boston Bulls were sold to a guy that wanted operated in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Upton bought the New York Stars, right? But he had he had the Boston front office. He had Babe Perilli and this girl named Dusty Rhodes, and 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 they were running in for i for i don't think dusty went down there cuz upton was a general manager but that's what went to charlotte it was schmertz's enterprise that went to charlotte got it the boston team went to portland interesting well th- th- even that is even convoluted it's just uh well when did you when did you know that the wfl was uh not only not for you but maybe just not for long for this this world or did you not see that till later on i saw it within a few months it just didn't feel right. You know, it felt just felt like it was built from the top down. And um, I just had a bad feeling about it. Um, and I was lucky to get out when I did. And, um, and I'm really glad I got Bob out when he did. But it just, just didn't feel right, you know. And I had no great I, – I love to watch the sport, but I had no great feel for the sport, you know. I wasn't involved in the culture of the sport and – just never felt right. I don't know how else to put it. Well, all right. So you got back into hockey. How did you? Um, so you know, how did you wend your way back into the uh, uh, in, into the sport? I mean, the Penguins of the 1990s, right? Which is sort of a, your next sort of really, you know, major you know sports involvement, right? Um, that that was nothing short of magical too. At least until you know, till the end uh, yeah. of, of that decade, though. You know, did was it? What was it about the sport of hockey? Was it because of your experiences? And you said, "Hey, I this is something I know." And now maybe having helping helped engineer the original Challenger League, uh, you would you would kind of made a run at the Penguins earlier in your career, sort of. But what happened? What happened on the when we remember we left the Whalers in '88, and we had. I just started in the film and my wife, Karen was acting and she was doing well. So we moved to LA and, and, you know, worked in the business. And within a year, I got a call from John Ziegler, who was the president of the league saying, you know, we'd like to expand Bruce, LA just did the Gretzky deal. Hockey seemed to be exploding in the, 
in the at that time and particularly out west and so they said it's time to get more markets so he said why don't you find us a market on the west coast and i said okay let's and establish a 50 million dollar benchmark price so we did we did the san jose deal lot of people realize or don't realize i was technically the we were the technically the first owners of san jose for about 20 minutes but we were and because we put the whole deal together and then the guns who own Minnesota decided, hey, we're having trouble in Minnesota. We want that market. So the solution was we go to Minnesota and the guns go to San Jose and we didn't want to be in Minnesota. We stayed there for about two months and left. And it was when we moved back to L.A. that I got a call from Mr. DeBartolo Sr., and he said, you know, you've, I've watched, you've done a couple of these deals and I have to sell the Penguins. Will you help me buy a buyer? Or excuse me, find a buyer. And I said, well, let's see what we can do. I spent seven months trying to get him a buyer to pay a fair price. Nobody would. So we put the deal together ourselves and ended up with the Penguins. But we sort of did it. But when I say by default, I don't mean that as much as by accident. You know what I mean? We took the team on to try to help them and sell it for them um, and ended up owning it. So, OK, let me let me back up because we've had a couple of conversations on on uh, on the Minnesota North Stars. And and, and I, I so I, I let me get this straight. So your your uh, push towards getting a franchise on the West Coast in San Jose backhandedly or ultimately helped you essentially become the owner of Pittsburgh in the early part of the 1990s. Well, not really. Uh, I mean, one had nothing directly to do with the other. San Jose, Minnesota was a transaction and there it was. But then, but then shortly thereafter, Mr. DeBartolo reached out and asked if I could help him like a broker. Got it. Find a buyer for his franchise. And uh, we, you know, we, we did our best, but everybody, was trying to buy it on the cheap and then we put the whole thing together and we said this could be a good deal for us and we did it and how did how did you get the money and 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 how did you rescue that franchise and then how did you uh, go about running that franchise to get to the point where you made it to the stanley cup and, and won your second title yeah i, I mean i really uh, we 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 the, the money person was a guy named morris bellsberg who had done minnesota with us and he wanted to get involved, so he was a money person. And look, when we bought the team, we closed it like literally at the opening of the season. Uh, so the credit for the Stanley Cup, although we're mighty proud to have our names on it, but that was that was well on its way of happening, thanks to Craig Patrick and the hockey, Scotty Bowman and the hockey guys. But it was a big thrill, nonetheless. I wouldn't kid you. Um, and the 90s were a terrible time in hockey. The 70s were terrible, and the 90s were terrible. And everybody will tell you that. Uh, so we had it for seven or eight years. Morris wanted to get out, and we brought in a guy named Roger Marino, and therein lies the story of economic turmoil. <laughs> well, let's hear it. I mean, what you think, so, all right, was it hockey or the decades and the macroeconomics associated with them? Or both? Well, I, I think it was both, really. Certainly in hockey, 
you had a problem in Canada and the Canadian dollar was dropping. True. So you had like 40, you had like a dollar differential of almost 40 cents on the dollar. So the American teams were subsidizing the Canadian teams and we sure as hell couldn't afford that. And then you had very, a lot of change at the NHL because you had Ziegler leaving and Gary Bettman coming in. You had Alan Eagleson leaving and Bob Goodenow coming in. So both sides sort of drove the stake in the ground for a sort of two new sheriffs in town. So, and, and Gary was right. We, we really needed stability on the player side. The player salaries were getting out of control again. And so you had a work, you had a couple of work stoppages during that period of time. You had one right when we were going for the cup, there was a player strike right at the playoffs. And then there was a work stoppage in 94, 95 that almost blew the season, but it didn't. And that was a turning point for us. We couldn't come back from that economically. We weren't financed well enough to really come back from only playing half a season. Yeah, but holy cow, some of some of the uh, the, the the great stars of that uh, of that era, right, went through Pittsburgh and uh, and you. Oh, darn right, they did. Yeah, yeah. I mean that must have been a heavy yeah. time, at least on the ice, when you didn't have to think about. Oh, that. it was fun. They were great guys. They were so good. It was fun, but it was. You know, they talk about the Penguins' bankruptcy. They had the we had the ninth best bottom line, if you get what I mean. They do a report every year, and they rank one to whatever number of the teams were. I think twenty-one at the time. We were number nine, so there were teams that were really suffering then. So it was a time of turmoil and 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 having to stabilize it, which Gary did. Well, so how did it sort of come to? In end, I mean, given all the all the success on the on the ice, and obviously the, the dramatic story of of, of Mario Lemieux, you know, and this sort of uh, you know uh, his, his health issues and all that. I mean, you know, you had some great success in, during that time. You had uh, some great crowds and some, but um, how, with that, you know, it's sort of the layman's view is, is how does it? I mean, was it always a challenge? I mean, I know I know the franchise actually had its financial issues even before you took ownership of the team. And there were threats to, to possibly leave, I guess, I guess back even in the mid eighties, but you know, oh, there were every, that was a fran- was one of those franchises like St. Louis too, always had sort of a mark of financial instability to it. And, and it never changed until they came out of the bankruptcy and Ron Burkle came in and Mario came in with Ron and it's been a wonderful franchise since then. I mean, we kept it there. I'm proud of that um, because we prevented it from moving, just like we prevented Minnesota from moving. But uh, it was it was a challenge. But it wasn't just a challenge for Pittsburgh. It was a challenge for 80% of the franchises in the league. It was a tough time because your salaries were just going up and and the revenues weren't going up the way they should be. And so that's where... You had to chip away at the collective bargaining agreement. You couldn't do it all at once and keep making it better and better. And then finally, Gary got it straightened away, I think, in 2003 or four. But they lost the whole season in doing it. Sure. And I also think, too, that it probably uh, it was also just before, I think, really the big television money really started to kick in. Right. I mean, cable really sort of coming into its own and and being a, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a huge driver or at least a contributor to league finances beyond just uh, one's uh, individual ability to sell tickets in in their own stadium no question whereas 
in most of my days, in fact, all my days, tickets were the number one revenue source. Right now, it's television, boxes, sponsorships within the arena. Um, and of course, tickets are important, so don't get me wrong. But you've now got revenue streams that didn't exist before. And, and you've got a controlled salary structure. So you have a chance to make it. Um, and it took a while to get there. For years in the NHL, the players were screwed. You know, you had a monopoly, you had six teams. And then you went to 12, and then the WHA came along. I say to this day, every player in hockey should give 1% of their, half a, half a percent <laughs> to the WHA guys. <laughs> All right, well, so before we get off of hockey, and I want to get to your sort of very final chapter here about what you've been doing since, obviously, you know, being a, a quite the mover and shaker in Hollywood with uh, not only you, but also your wife. Um, what do you what do you make of the Las Vegas Golden Knights and that success story that I don't think, frankly, many people saw coming or maybe you did? And I did not. Oh, I don't think anybody did. And how about Seattle going for what, half a billion dollars? I mean, are we at peak NHL now or, or, or you know, I don't think we're at peak at all. I think there's they got great room for growth. I didn't see Vegas. I think they've done such a brilliant job in Vegas. Seattle, I think, is going to be an extraordinary success story. It's always been a strong market way back in the days of the old Western League. And you've got an amazing ownership team there with Bonderman and Jerry Bruckheimer, Tim Liawicki. It's going to be a great, great, they'll be in the top 10 within a very short period of time. It's a terrific market. Well, so is Houston, though, right? They've always they Quebec certainly wants to back in. I mean, I th- you know, um, but you know, I we're also I think now to get macroeconomic here, but we're also sort of uh, near, I don't know, perhaps near the end of, of a cycle. I don't know. We'll see how long it goes. But you know, we're, we we we've sort of been in a 10, 12 year cycle of relatively inexpensive money and and all of that. And and you wonder when there's a shock to the the economic system whether thirty two NHL teams or you know, however many there are in the NFL. I mean, it seems like there are so many teams and leagues and franchises out there that uh, I, you wonder how far the entertainment dollar can uh, can stretch. We well, got to look at each league separately. The NFL is a league unto itself. You only have eight games at home, and you play them on a Sunday, so you can really ratchet up, can't you? Eight eight games, come on. We got forty one home games in hockey. So, and in baseball, you have a 81, and in basketball, you have 41. So it's a much more complex business model. Um, for uh, and, and, and there aren't, you know, you're running out of markets. But at the same time, as long as you have revenue streams that continue to grow, distribution, whether it be through through the internet or whether it be through cable or whether it be through uh, overseas, uh, that's where the values are going up. It's product, not unlike film, not unlike TV. Hockey and sports are product. And and um, look, if you do a game, let's just say it's a Penguin game, okay? And they do a game on TV. It's about three hours for the game. Then you have a half hour pre and a half hour post. I'm not so crazy on that, right? So that's four hours. And then they run it two more times. So that's 12 hours of programming for one game for a regional network. So it's very good programming. Uh, 
and and I think we all lose sight of the fact that that okay, so we in hockey don't get the national revenue quite the way the others do. Though Gary's got it going up there, we also have great regional deals, and you combine the two, and hockey's doing pretty damn well. And then you look at the future and you say, well, what'll happen in the future? Look, within five to 10 years, there's no question in my mind these leagues are going to be expanding to Europe and overseas. No question. So there's great growth ahead. Uh, there's great opportunity, you know, ahead. Now, sometimes you, you're all, every league. I mean, last year, the last three years, the NFL moved three teams. They moved Oakland, they moved Raiders, or I'm sorry, San Diego, and they moved the Rams. In the NFL. So you're always going to have franchise movement from, you know, maybe every five to ten years. But um, I don't know. I think it's a good time for sports. You mentioned international, right? So uh, one last question on hockey, right? Um, uh, do I have this right? You were you were you had part ownership of the old Soviet Red Army team back yeah, in the day. Yeah, in the mid '90s, that was great fun. What was so? What was that all about? And was that I, did that also did that also sort of lead you into some uh, doings around the uh, the KHL in, in in Russia, which is arguably the second best sort of league out there in the world. Yeah, no, we don't we don't have nothing, anything to do with the KHL. We were involved with the Sleska Red Army team for a couple of years, and we did it because we felt it would give us an edge in the marketplace, and we thought it was a good business venture because because the walls were coming down, the barriers were coming down. We thought economically we could make money there, and the second year we were, it was really working, and then. And then it got a little dangerous, so we pulled out. Very interesting. Um, well, all right. Well, let's uh, let's sort of round uh, third base here. And um, how do you? And it's it's all laid out very nicely in your book, and which I will highly recommend. And we will tap both at the beginning and the end of the show. How do you how do you go from being sort of the, this this hockey guru and this sports entrepreneur success a couple of times over? How do you make the move into Hollywood and, and, and motion picture production and, and all that kind of stuff? Seems like it's a completely different uh, and foreign uh, world than uh, from, from, from your successes uh, on the ice, shall we say. Yeah, well, I mean, we segued into it, as it says in the book, through a friend. And we put a little money up for a script that we developed and it got made, which is probably unfortunate. If it hadn't, we might have saved a lot of money. <laughs> and one thing leads to another and all of a sudden you're in the business. And it was nice because it, uh, my wife, Karen, was acting and then she started writing and producing together. We do that. And and um, it, it's fun because it's every project is a separate business unto itself. And so that if you get a movie, trying to make a something mystery, Alaska, sudden death, you know, it's very intense for a year and a half or two and you get it made and then bingo, you're on to the next one. Um, and, uh, and we still do it. We're still active. We're starting a movie right now in three days in New York that we're going back for. Um, you want to give our audience a little hint? Oh, it's a, it's a, we get we get a lot of the hockey pictures, <laughs> so it's a small hockey picture called Odd Man Rush, written by a young man that went to Harvard in mid two thousand, and he was a good player, not a great player, but he had the dream to play, and it's sort of like slap shot meets, um, gosh, uh, it's just a nice journey that this young man is on to try to fulfill his dream of becoming a professional player, and he goes to Europe and a bunch of different teams and. It's it's a good story, uh, 
and it's not a big movie it's a smaller movie but it's going to be good well, you could, you, could, um, you could take the hockey out of the man, but you can't take the man out of hockey, I guess, or whatever that, whatever the, so. Yeah, whatever that means. Whatever that means. Well, I, I guess you know what I mean. But uh, so do you ever get the hankering to get back into the, the hockey game, so to speak, or into sports? Or are you, you kind no, of. No, cool because. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I love it. I, we went up to the All-Star this weekend. Uh, it was very kind of the commissioner to invite us. We love seeing the remnants of the people we knew. Most of it's all new, but uh, it's such a different business now. I mean, these guys have budgets of $170 million a year, um, and it's and it's become a big, big front office. I remember with Ed Snyder, when we wrote our book, which you, which you mentioned kindly, I put a picture of the front office, of the first picture, I think, in there. Somewhere in there, you look, you'll see the entire front office on one page in the NHL media guide, because I was so excited when the media guide came out to see my name in print. And the entire front office, including owners, scouts, coaches, was like 17 people. Now, I was saying to Eddie, how many people do you have now with the Flyers? He said, oh, my God, Howard. You know, this is four years ago. We have about 170 people. I said, good Lord almighty. So it's way more complex. It's not a business that I should be running or all at all. I had my time. I loved it um, and cared deeply about it. But uh, on to different things. Well, look, we, we, we encourage our audience to get Slim and Nun. And again, we'll, we'll talk about it at the, the top of the, the bottom of the show. But uh, it, it, it's a it's a it's a tremendous story. I mean, it's not. Um, I wouldn't call it rags to riches, right? You, you sort of didn't start from sort of, you know, being poor by any means. So, but, but the idea of, of sort of where you came from and how to, you know, go from, from running, uh, you know, a hockey franchise and, and, and successfully and then, and into Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's almost like kind of a little Walter Mitty or almost, you know, pinch me kind of well, moment. Though, a right? little bit, Tim, you're right. I mean, that's a nice way to describe it. It's just a question of you have a passion for something and if you're a young person starting out and you see something you really want to do and you love it, go for it. Don't let anybody talk you out of it Um, because you're only young once. It doesn't mean you'll succeed. Listen, we've had our knocks, but but at least you know you're following. Um, You know who Tom Rich is, the agent, great guy, great friend, represented Mario and a lot of great, great players. I remember once having a drink with Tom and we looked at each other and said, geez, if we had gone and discovered a computer chip or widgets or something, we'd be rich. (laughs) But we followed our passion and we've had fun. And that's what it is. Well, okie dokie then. There you go. A great chat uh, with our new friend Howard Baldwin, uh, live and exclusive from Los Angeles. And uh, we appreciate uh, him taking time uh, to uh, go back into the uh, the Wayback Machine and talking about the uh, the early days of his uh, very interesting career and life story. Uh, Starting back with the old World Hockey Association of the New England Whalers. Uh, And as you heard, you know, this is a team... Uh, that still lives on, uh, even though it's not uh, been on the ice in Hartford uh, for decades now. And uh, it's uh, clearly something special. And uh, what a great way to kick off a uh, an amazing professional career. Uh, you know, winning the championship in the WHA, uh, that's a that's a heady experience right there. But then going on to win 
uh, as the owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins, the uh, Stanley Cup in the NHL. Boy, oh boy, that's that's uh, a hard to achieve. And then winning some uh, Academy Awards as a film producer. I mean, it's just, you know, that's an amazing uh, arc of uh, success. And, uh, and, uh, and what a story that is. And you will find uh, all of that story and more in uh, his very fine autobiography uh, by Howard Baldwin called Slim and None, My Wild Ride from the WHA to the NHL and all the way to Hollywood. Uh, it is a, a fantastic read. Uh, it is published by the House of Ansansi Press. It uh, came out in uh, late 2014. You will find a link to it uh, and all of its 320 some odd pages uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search up this episode with Howard Baldwin and you will find uh, a convenient link uh, to this book uh, on Amazon. Uh, you can also get the Kindle version there as well. And uh, by doing so, you'll get a couple of shekels our way to keep our lights on and, and the heat going uh, to uh, keep this show up and running. And we appreciate your doing so. Uh, and of course, you'll find all of our old episodes and, and links to the books and other media that we refer to. Uh, on our website uh, as well. Again, it's goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find uh, all of our social media links. Uh, let's see, at Twitter, we're at goodseatsstill. You'll find us on Instagram at goodseatsstillavailable. There is a, uh, a, a Facebook page devoted to us as well. Uh, you can send us some email. There's a link there, but you can send it to us directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, let's see what else. Uh, we uh, want to thank our friends, at Podfly Productions, as always, podfly.net, and our good pal Jerry Payne, who puts uh, all of our pieces together editorially and uh, does a really smash-up job for us each and every week and puts up with us. We appreciate that. And we also appreciate you uh, going to any of the places that you download or find this show or stream it, whatever you do, however you find us. Uh, if you would be so kind to give us some ratings and some reviews, uh, we like as many stars as possible and a couple of nice little words of praise. We will take that. Uh, your cons your constructive criticism, too. No, why not? Uh, but if you can rate and review us wherever you can, uh, that'll help our algorithms and get us uh, found and discovered by other fans and friends uh, similar to you uh, who might uh, similarly enjoy uh, the proceedings that we do each and every week here on uh, on the show. So we appreciate you doing that. And uh, we appreciate you listening, of course, as always. And until next week, uh, we wish you a fond uh, farewell and we'll see you then. Bye.